Our scripture reading is also from Acts chapter 5. We, we turn for the last time towards the end of chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 27 to the end of the chapter. We find the apostles on their second general arrest. It is actually the third arrest because in the second one they are delivered by the angel. They are rearrested the second day. And in verse 27 we read, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space, and said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Thudas, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about four hundred, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him, he also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of His own word and the further preaching shortly. Amen. Dear congregation, as our attention 
um, turns back to Acts chapter 5. And we again look at this chapter where, along with a couple chapters from the back, we saw form the very beginning of the persecution of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And being this, it, it affords us wonderful opportunities to learn, to learn things about God's providence and learn things about God's people and even learn things about God's enemies and those who, who are going against God's people. And we, we have seen that these apostles, they have been arrested. Yes, the, the, the crowning reason is the message that they bear. That's what they are being told repeatedly to stop doing. But their arrest are, is always connected with the good that they are doing. The first arrest, that was just Peter and John. It was following that miracle of the man who was 40 years of age, who had been lame his whole life. And everything indicates that during the proceedings of the interrogation, that man was there as a living proof of the good that they had done. And now all of the apostles are taken. And a verse that, that is very important in chapter 5 is verse 16. It's the very last verse before they are arrested. And, and let me read that verse at this point. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. And it's the very next verse where the high priest rises up and, and calls the rest of the sect of the Sadducees. They were filled with indignation. They arrest the whole company of the apostles. And so it begs the question, what, why are they so intent in arresting these men who are doing so much good. And what can we learn from the heart of unbelief? And, and today we're going to, going to look at this portion um, in, in three ways. First of all, it is from the perspective of God and seeing what God is doing. Um, they, they are asked the question, what they're doing and why they insist in preaching Christ. Peter gives a very short summary. There's at least a short summary here in the text of what Peter gives and declares that Jesus has resurrected. God is the one who arose him from the dead. The reason they do what they do is because they have to obey God rather than men. And who is this Christ and what is his message? Well, he is prince and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. And then he declares themselves as witnesses and he declares the Holy Spirit as witnesses. And then verse 33, we see the, 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 the joint unanimous, it seems, but we will realize it's not unanimous, but it seems to be the design, the, 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 the plan the decision of the Sanhedrin. 
In verse 33 it says, When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. But then what does God do? God protects them. And He protects them in a second time. This, is, this will be our first point. The protection in providence. I'm going to do just a little something different um, in our outline. The next point would be perseverance in persecution. And then the third point would be politeness in rejection. We're, we're going to switch the next two points. So what we're doing is this. We're looking at God and what He's doing. He is protecting His disciples. And then secondly, we'll look at this person Gamaliel because it's through Gamaliel that God ends up protecting His people. And then thirdly, we'll look at the perseverance in rejection because it follows in terms of the narrative where, where God's people following the beating that they even receive, they just go on with rejoicing and going on in their work. So what we're doing is we're seeing God and what He's doing in this passage we're looking at the people who are opposing God, and then we'll look at God's people. Each of these points will touch on, on, on all that's happening in this context. So first of all, the protection in providence. And, and this is a very short introductory point, because we, we, we need to see the beauty of God's providence in this event. This is the second arrest But God protects his people two times in the second arrest. As soon as they are put into prison, that first night that they are there, an angel appears in the middle of the night in verse 19. And he opens the prison doors and brings them forth and tells them, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. They hear the command of this angel. They are delivered by him. And so they go and they continue preaching. And the very next day, the um, Sanhedrin assembles. They are ready to judge whom they think are in prison. They find out they're all delivered and they're all back doing what they were doing to begin with. And so they are rearrested. And we, we just read the, the, the last part of the arrest where Gamaliel rises up and, and he gives a defense, as it were, not, not a defense of these men, but he does speak in a way where they should be more careful about what they're doing and the result is that they are delivered. And so what God does is he uses an angel in a miraculous way and in a heavenly way and in a divine way And now he uses one of the men, one of the very men that are part of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. And and in our second point that we're about to get to, we're going to see that this Gamaliel was not a believer. He was not someone who was seeking to protect God's people. In his politeness, we will realize that it is only Outward, it is not truly inward. There was really no politeness at all. But God uses him. God uses him. God uses his reasoning. And his reasoning is found in verse 39 after he presents those two characters that that had gone before in their history. They had a following, but when those two characters died, Thutis and Judas, 
the following also died. And so he says this in verse 39. If it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found even to fight against God. This, this Gamaliel brings this possibility that if the work of these apostles is of God, then we will be fighting against God, and that is, of course, useless. It is even dangerous. So let us be careful. Let us give some time to test this movement. And, and, and it's from, from his words that we have even the theme of our message, the work of man and the work of God. It is true what Gamaliel says, that there are things in this world that are of men, and there are things in this world that are of God. And this man Gamaliel is who brings this to the attention of the other people who were wanting to act very harshly and rashly and kill, to counsel to slay them. They are ready to do to the apostles what they did to Jesus. But God uses Gamaliel to calm them down. Um, Calvin says this, Luke shows us here how the apostles were delivered by the providence of God. They are like sheep before the slaughter, the knife at their throats. They are surrounded by rabid wolves bearing their sharp teeth. They have no hope of escaping. But they do escape this danger because God preserves them and their enemies are powerless at this time. The gospel is to be made known throughout the world. That is why our Lord delivers them. They don't have power over him because it's not time for them to be silenced. It is not time for them to be martyred. It is not time for them to even be imprisoned. It is time for them to go out and preach the gospel. And so that will happen, and God uses um, Gamaliel. Um, Calvin further says, their understanding was made dull. And so if we stop to think, God is not just using Gamaliel. He is also working in the heart of those Sadducees whom, whom, call, whom Calvin calls those rabid wolves who were burying their teeth and ready to jump and kill the apostles. What made him stop? They, they were certain that that was not the work of God. They, they, they had such an anger and such a disregard for the message of these men. Why, why do they even listen to Gamaliel? So we, we see here that God is also working in their hearts, confounding them. They, they, in a sense, have it all set and ready, but they do need to listen to Gamaliel. There are elements of ethics, perhaps, that makes them have to do that. In our second point, we will look at Gamaliel and who he is that possibly was used of God to make them be more careful about what they were doing. And God protected them. So God can use angels that are for him, and he can use unbelievers that are against him to do what God wills to be done. But then, um, let's look at our second point, the politeness um, in rejection. Why do, I, why do I call it that? 
Because what, what we find in Gamaliel is something quite unique. We, we've been seeing the disciples surrounded by people. We, we've, we've even considered, we're seeing the heart of unbelief. Unbelief is rejection because that's what these people are doing. The, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin were not believing the message of Christ and not believing the message of the apostles. So what were they doing? They were rejecting them. To put them in prison is a way of rejecting everything about them. But we also saw that it was very illogical and very irrational. They were putting behind bars men who were good. Men who had been doing wonderful deeds and wonderful works. And, and their, their message was of Jesus. Remember, we, we looked at this. That these were men who, who had the assets and they had the information and they, they probably knew a lot about the ministry of Christ. And they knew that he had been born in Bethlehem. They knew he was of the lineage of David. They had been seeing the miracles that were fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament. They would even know that this man Jesus had one who came in the power of Elijah as one to prepare the way of the Lord so that they would know that Malachi and Isaiah had been fulfilled through this man Jesus. Now the apostles are witnesses that they did see him die, but he arose from the dead. They don't stop for a minute to consider what all this means. They're just irrational. But now with Gamaliel, we learn a few more things about what unbelief is. It's not just rejection, and it's not just irrationality. There are at least four more things that we can learn just with Gamaliel. And the first is this, that unbelief is deceptive. Unbelief might look like belief. There are people who have looked at this very Gamaliel and, and said, wait, you're saying that unbelievers are illogical, that unbelievers are rejectors. I don't see this in Gamaliel. He's very polished. He's very refined. He's giving these men honor. He's not rejecting. Is he possibly a believer? There's some people who think he is. But see, this is where he comes as a very important lesson to us because he warns us of the deceptive nature of unbelief. That someone will be a complete unbeliever but look like he might be a believer. And this is what we see first when we look at Gamaliel. And before we even look at the other things about what unbelief is, let's look then at Gamaliel, who, who he is, and why is it that he teaches us that unbelief is deceptive? That you may be an unbeliever, but people think you are a believer. It's a very dangerous thing, isn't it? Let's, let's look at Gamaliel. Well, well, he was the grandson of the famous rabbi Hillel. Hillel is perhaps one of the most famous rabbis of Jewish, um, Jewish culture. Um, Hillel was born in Babylon around 75 before Christ, and he would have died around 15 A.D. So 
And when Jesus was a teenager, Hillel would have died. And Gamaliel was his grandson. Um, In the Jewish tradition from the Mishnah, there's a passage about Gamaliel there. And it says that when he died, when Gamaliel died, because he was such an honorable and pious rabbi himself, it says that the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. Gamaliel was known as Gamaliel the Elder or Gamaliel the First because later his grandson was Gamaliel the Second. And and he was unrivaled in those days for his knowledge um, of the law and as a distinguished teacher. We read in Acts 22.3 that Gamaliel was the, 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 the rabbi, you would say, or the mentor of Apostle Paul. Apostle sat at the feet of Gamaliel. There were many things good about Gamaliel. Um, <clears throat> as we look at, at what he said, we do see reasoning. And this is why it's important. We, we said that unbelief is illogical, but here we find if he's an unbeliever, he seems very logical. He seems to be using his mind. And there is a line of thought here that, that you could say certainly is logical, but we will see the fallacies pretty soon. And that's where we see the deceptive nature. He does seem to be compassionate. He does seem to be calm. He's, he's definitely not being ruled by his passions. We, we see how those Sadducees took counsel to slay them. Um, they, they were cut to the heart. And all of a sudden this man comes and speaks. And we see the, the stark difference. One group of men, they seem to just be taken by their passion and this Gamaliel arises and he's so so calm and he's so patient um, and he's, he's considering the merits of the movement he's, he's literally saying that there's a possibility that this, this movement of the disciples and, and, and of this Jesus of Nazareth that it could possibly be of God even, even when you think of, of one of the men from the Sanhedrin speaking that way in our minds because we're also with the judgment of charity and we're trying to think the best of this man we we do and we start thinking wow this this man is literally thinking there's some merit in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and and if he's concerned about fighting against God that means that he fears God he's a god fearer he's Afraid of being found going against God. So we, we can say some of these good things, and some of the commentators bring these things out that has to be considered. And theologically, this is in the realm of God's common grace. Not every unbeliever is acting according to his nature, because God in his grace has given even people who do not love Him elements of grace and elements of goodness and elements of knowledge and elements of rationality and elements of compassion. But beloved, see, this is the problem. These are just elements. 
You could use the word trace. You see traces of compassion, traces of politeness, traces of honor. It's just a trace. Because as we consider the bad in Gamaliel, you're going to see that all of this goodness is only at face value. It is not at heart value. And that is, of course, where it really matters. What do I mean? Well, let us begin by his reasoning. When he brings Thutis and Judas as examples, you know, just very briefly, these were people who had been, in essence, freedom fighters for the Jews. They, they were people who were in the category of, of the zealots who wanted Israel to go back to its independence. And so they did not measure elements of violence or cruelty regarding the measures of obtaining that freedom. And of course, enemy number one was Rome. But there were other secondary enemies who would be Jewish people who were condoning with Rome. And in, in countries where these things happen, these are the people called the, the terrorists. But they are seen as, as um, patriotic terrorists, you could say. We don't know too many details about them. We do find Josephus, um, the Jewish historian, mentioning Judas, the Galilean. Um, and then we do hear of Thutis having possibly lived in the days where Jesus had been born like around 4 to 5 um, um, A.D. So these were men who, who had lived and who had had a following, but then when they died, their following died. And so Gamaliel is saying, see, this is a good example for us to use. Let's apply um, a test to this group. Their leader has already died. Well, let us give us some days. Let us evaluate what's happening. And then possibly all of this will die. And, and we won't have to do anything. Why do I say that, that we start there to see um, the bad? Well, the first thing is this. Gamaliel still needs a sign. What he's calling for is a test. But the word test is a code word for sign. So if Jesus were here and Gamaliel were to see Jesus, very likely Gamaliel would be one who would say, Lord, give me one more sign and I will believe in you. And the Lord Jesus taught us what he thinks of people who ask for another sign. And in Matthew twelve thirty nine, it says... An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, beloved, Jesus didn't say this because he's averse to signs. It's, it's, he said this because there had been plenteous and multitudes of signs. And a person who at that point dared look in the eyes of Jesus and say, well, just one more sign was simply someone whom he puts in the category as evil and adulterous. Because how could you possibly want one more sign? This came in the context, remember, after Jesus had fed more than 5,000 people 
The very next day where Jesus was speaking about believing in him, that's when the people said, well, give us one more sign. Moses gave manna in the desert. What can you do? And Jesus called them evil and adulterous. So they had eaten the miraculous bread and fish, and they still wanted one more sign. And you see, this is exactly who Gamaliel is. He needs one more sign. Let's just give time. We're not even asking something too miraculous, but let us just ask for time. See, God has given signs before, and when he sees that people need it, he condescends to the weakness of their hearts, and he gives them signs. He, he even made a wool that was sitting in the dew to be dry while the ground was wet when Gideon asked for a sign. And God condescended to Gideon the next day and made it where it was all wet on the wool and not on the sides. God inverted the sign because he, Gideon, needed the sign. His faith was little. God loved Gideon and he did have faith, but it had to increase. God condescended to him and gave him signs. But see, when Jesus said what he said, he had just given the sign of 5,000 plus people having been fed. And Gamaliel exists after even more miracles and more signs. And now the resurrection. And now he knows that that man lame was healed who was 40 years old and more. And and he knows of that multitude of folks that were healed, every one from verse 16. And Gamaliel knows that these men were in prison and were let loose by some miraculous power and is now right there in their presence and he still needs one more sign you see which means secondly that he still does not believe he is not a believer he is not a a a a a person who is with a very little faith and just needs to increase he has no faith whatsoever So he's an unbeliever. He's saying, I do not believe in them. Anytime you need to put time to the test of Christianity to then believe it, it means that right now you are without faith. Um, One David Peterson, a commentator, says this about the council of Gamaliel. It, It could be also a temporizing statement closer to fatalism than to reverent faith. Is more a way that was fatalistic. Let us see what happens. Let it be. And then we can decide. Thirdly, we could say he is not polite at heart. It was only a facade of politeness. And and let me explain why. There are two things especially. One is exactly the reasoning he brings. Beloved, you have put together what we've been thinking around this whole topic. There's the reality of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. 
who was born of Virgin Mary, where angels came to proclaim his birth, who had the proclaimer, the the preparer of the way, who came in the spirit of Elijah, Passages from the Old Testament, 400, 700 years before, are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The blind are seen, the lame are walking, dead people are being made alive. Remember, boys and girls, this Jesus walks on water. And see, this is Jesus. And Gamaliel, excuse me. I keep thinking my voice is back, but it's not fully back. But Gamaliel, this, beloved, is what you need to understand. This is the utter impoliteness and rejection in the heart of this man. He puts Jesus in the same category as Thutis and Judas, who were political fighters. All they cared for was the kingdom of this world. And Jesus made clear that his kingdom was not of this world. And, and I don't know the hearts completely of these two men. They were possibly God-fearing men. But their concern was with the dust of this earth. And the gold that they had. And possibly they committed violent acts that would have been seen as crimes in the eyes of God. And Gamaliel is saying, you know, Jesus might be one of them. I'm just not sure. That's not polite. That's not honorable. And then it's also not polite because of this. As soon as he gives his his words in verse 40, it says, And to him they agreed. That was the miracle in the hearts of the Sadducees that that they, to some degree, agreed with this. It's, It's an astonishing thing. But then it says, And when they had called the apostles and beaten them. And we never hear a word from Gamaliel. Well, if, if, if his whole mindset was, let us not fight against God, why can we might maybe now possibly um, be doing this anyway by beating these men? We haven't done the test yet. We, we just hear the word beaten, and, and our minds kind of just carry on through in the text, but we need to realize this, this is the 40 lashes minus one that that was their way to make sure that they were only giving 40 lashes and no more because the Old Testament um, prescribed that for wrongdoers in their punishment to be lashed 40 stripes. And so to be careful, they always did 39. So these men are bleeding. These men are bruised. A lot of this scourging um, brought death to the people who received it. And Gamaliel seems to be okay with that. So you see, beloved, all of, all of these things. He still needs test. means he does not believe. It means he's not polite at heart. And fourthly, the last thing, um, he's, he's wrong. He's wrong. It's not true that if it continued, it would be a proof that it is God's work. 
if that is true, well then Islam must be true and Buddhism must be true and the Mormon church must be true because these works began and they don't seem to end. You see, Gamaliel's um, theology is not fully to be received because we know that Islam and Buddhism and, and the Mormon church, those are not works of God. But in God's providence, he allows it to continue. And there were churches in the north of Africa. North of Africa was entirely a Christian realm. But now you find one or two churches here and there. Well, does that mean it's not a work of God? Because it disappeared in many places. See, you can't apply what Gamaliel says. It only has a surface of wisdom. It's not true. Not in the absolute sense. He he was a secular pragmatic man stop to think what he's saying if it works then it's true let's give it some time if there's a success to their ministry well then it's a good ministry that's pragmatism and it's dangerous because there are many things that continue that are not good and there are many things that end Many good churches throughout the world where, where you think of the Huguenots in France who, who were throughout all of France, but, but then France had to be wiped away from all of them because thousands were killed and the others fled. But it was of God. And so he was wrong. And so all of this to prove how unbelief is very deceptive. And, and then we can add this to what unbelief is. I said that I was going to bring about four um, more things about unbelief. It's, it's deceptive. And then also because of seeing in, in Gamaliel, we see that unbelief is just blind. It is blind. Um, there, there seems to be even an honorable character to those who are unbelievers in some in some of the unbelieving hearts, like Gamaliel. But see, who was Gamaliel? He, he was blind. He, he couldn't see the difference between a Judas of a, of, a, of a political reform movement and a Jesus. He couldn't see the difference. So he was blind. It teaches us that unbelief is blind. Um, there were little children who could see better when they see Jesus riding on the donkey. They, they were instigated by the Holy Spirit to praise the Lord Jesus as the King of Israel. And they were right. But unbelievers were blind and told the little children to stop. But that was the King. Zechariah was being fulfilled. Behold, your King, humble, riding on a donkey. Then a... a, a it's actually a fourth thing about unbelief because we're seeing that unbelief is, is rejection. It is illogical. It is blind. And, and it is deceptive. And then the fifth thing, unbelief is cold and calculating. Unbelief is always impersonal. It fails to apply Jesus to their own heart. See, that's, 
That's at the end, the very heart of unbelief. It is somebody who sees Jesus and he is thinking very, very calculating about him, very coldly about him, very arms, um, arms length of him or even more. But they never consider, what does Jesus say to my heart? What does Jesus mean? If he is a savior, do I have another way to be saved? If he is the Messiah who was promised, can I think of another Messiah who was promised? Let me sit down and consider Jesus. That's the heart of faith. The heart of unbelief just keeps him at a distant distance. Doesn't want anything personal with the Lord Jesus. The Calvin brings this out. He says, let us learn from Gamaliel's example that it is not enough to have a general acquaintance with God's truth, but we must seek what God intends when speaking to us. For it is only when we learn how to apply the full teaching of the gospel to our lives that we enjoy its benefits. Otherwise, we will never learn how to benefit from it. And that's the one thing Gamaliel wanted nothing to do. He didn't want to sit and consider who Jesus was. And um, what's ironic is this very man who said about the danger of fighting against God, perhaps from that very phrase we have a conclusion of what unbelief is. If it is rejection... And if it is this irrationality, and and if it is um, this blindness and this deception, it, it is ultimately a fighting against God. And it's amazing. In God's providence, he uses this unbeliever to teach us what unbelief is through his life and even through his words. That is true, what he said, that if the movement is of God and they go against it, you are fighting against God. That's, that's the one true statement that Gamaliel said. But the very fact that he lacked in saying, and I believe it, put him on the unbeliever side, which meant all these things that we've been seeing. Well, let me now go to our third point because after all this happened, after Gamaliel is used of God to protect these people and then used of God to teach us all these things about the danger of the heart of unbelief, um, we, we find after their beating in verse 41, they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And, and boys and girls, this is how you need to see this. This is completely contrary to what you could expect. Because after you receive 30, 39 lashes, 
And if we take this by, by the value, the apostles, and beaten them, it, the context gives us the only permission to consider that every last one of them were scourged. And, and if this were, because it could be that they chose to diminish, we, we don't know. But we know they couldn't go beyond the 39 lashes. So these men are bleeding, they are bruised, they are hurting, but they are rejoicing. And this is what I mean by perseverance and persecution. They are rejoicing. And, and let me just say these few words about, about this rejoicing. The, the first word is honor. That's what they felt. Being bruised, it gave them honor. Look, rejoicing that they were counted worthy That's an element of honor, that they were honored to suffer shame for his name. They loved Jesus so much. Jesus was their Messiah and Savior. They are now suffering because of their allegiance with Jesus. And that simple connection gives them honor. Because they are literally suffering because of their love for Christ. And that gave them a sense of of honor but this honor is immediately connected to belonging the word belonging summarizes the next um, thought here because there's an affinity that they feel and, and, and God's word gives credence to this one of these very apostles later when he writes an epistle 1 Peter 4.13 he says this and notice the words he's using you can imagine he knew by experience what he was saying he says but rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy He's speaking of joy, but he's speaking of sufferings. And he's speaking of Christ's sufferings. And he's speaking of partaking of Christ's sufferings. And beloved, you've probably heard me say this before, that that any suffering in a sense, in a believer's life, there will be by application this connection that I will say right now. But not every suffering is immediately the fulfillment of 1 Peter 4.13. It has to be a suffering for Christ's sake. The moment you receive a lash or you are put in prison or, or young people, if somebody laughs at you because you're a Christian. See, if you're suffering in the direction of persecution... You are partaking of the sufferings of Christ. It is not an application of this verse. It is a fulfillment of this verse. And see, the believer will immediately sense a belonging. I am his. This suffering that I have, I am sharing with Christ. It was meant for him. But I received it. And he feels it as if upon himself. That's what Paul heard from Jesus. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He was persecuting Christians, but Jesus took it as upon himself. 
And a Christian, when, when he's in that kind of suffering, he will feel something of that joy. A joy of belonging. I am Jesus's. And this suffering that I'm receiving is, is connecting me, as it were, with the suffering of Christ. I'm feeling something that is connected to what Jesus felt for me. And the world hates him. They can't hurt him. So they're hurting me. So this hurt was really meant for him. And you see, you get lost in that sense of honor and belonging that goes together. This is what they're feeling. And then thirdly, we can also add the word reward because these men remembered, and may God bless you and me to remember if ever there's elements of persecution, that it is a reward that is promised when there is persecution. The disciples knew that. That's Matthew 5, 11 from the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. So this is how you should see it. As soon as there is a persecution, well, then you qualify for this reward. And that should give joy. Because it's not a reward on earth. It's a reward in heaven. It's a reward that is heavenly, that no one can take from you. That's one reason for this joy. And so honor, belonging, Reward, And we can add the word obedience because that is what they were doing. The beatitude says, blessed are ye when men shall revile you, etc. And verse 12, rejoice and be exceeding glad. And that's why the disciples, apostles, later Paul spoke of rejoicing and then Peter, what we just read. It's an obedience. And then fifthly, there's, <clears throat> there's a context of the prophets, again, by what Jesus said um, in the Beatitudes. Verse 12 reads, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now, now this is a secondary joy, because of course the greatest joy is to be united to Christ, but we're also united to all the other prophets who also suffered. So see, there's a sense of belonging increasing. And then the last thing we could say is that the reason you can rejoice when there is persecution and the reason they were rejoicing is because of faith because wherever there is faith it'll grow and God uses trials to grow our faith First Peter 1 6 and 7 wherein ye greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ see this is exactly what was happening they had faith the faith is being tried and it is coming forth pure and pure. And pure faith will have joy even in the midst of suffering. 
because that's a more perfected faith. So those are the the six reasons I can find. Um, And then we could speak more, but um, that's why they're rejoicing. Now I want to end with with an example that I found um, in one of the commentaries about one um, James Chalmers. He was from Scotland, and it was 1877 when he sailed to the Cook Islands to be a missionary. And that those were the days in which in the Polynesian islands, um, the natives were cannibals. But he went and he ministered there until he was 60 years old. And in one of his, <clears throat> um, when he was 21 years um, as a missionary, you, you read this in one of his journals. Recall the 21 years give me back all its experiences give me its shipwrecks its standing in the face of death surrounded by savage savages with spears and clubs clubs give it back and i will still be your missionary and he continued ministering like i said till 1901 is when he died he was 60 years old murdered by by cannibals but a blessing, an amazing blessing about this story is that later in World War II, there were some American pilots, um, firefighters, who were downed near New Guinea. And they, they were rescued into one of these islands. And the natives who were there witnessed to these pilots and they were converted. And so, if those missionaries hadn't gone there, those islands would continue in heathen hearts, and there would be no safety for these pilots. But they found Christians who evangelized them. So this Chalmers is like one of these very apostles who go right back to the ministry, and rejoicing even though there's blood and there's hurting because they serve a God who is sovereign, who delivers by angels and even by polite um, unbelievers. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we pray that we would heed, Lord, the warning. We live in a world where there are many people who would not like to say something against Jesus and yet they do not follow or serve him. They do not trust him as their Lord and Savior. They have not sat down and personally considered their need for Christ and how there is no other way of salvation but by his name. They avoid being personal. They avoid being intimate with Christ. Lord, we pray that Thou would reveal to these hearts that they are unbelievers as much as the Sadducees who reject Christ openly. We pray, Lord, that Thou would help hearts to know that to be politely an unbeliever is to be a rejecter of Christ, to be blind 
and to be irrational still because the Lord Jesus is worthy to be believed and to be followed. He alone has risen from the grave by His own power and might and who never sinned and who died for sinners. He is precisely who we need. And we plead, Lord, that Thou would open hearts to acknowledge their need of the Lord Jesus Christ and not that they would sit as judges and give time to see if Christ is worthy of their faith but that they would fall at the feet of Jesus. Like the woman who would not stop kissing his feet, or like the little children who would wave those branches and call him blessed as the son of David. Lord, we pray that thou would save unbelievers and strengthen thy people. Help us, Lord, to have something of the persevering grace of these very apostles. And prepare us, Lord, for whatever persecutions we may ever face in in our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.